0: Dr. William Lane Craig was formerly a visiting scholar at the Higher Institute of Philosophy at the University in Belgium. He is currently a visiting scholar at uh, Emory University and teaches adjunct, as an adjunct professor at Talbot Theological Seminary. He holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of Birmingham in England and also a PhD in theology from the University of Munich in Germany. He has published extensively and his uh, books number such books as The Sun Rises, the existence of God, and the beginning of the universe in his most recent book, Reasonable Faith. We'll begin with Dr. William Lane Craig. Thank you, and good evening. I'm delighted to be here tonight to participate in this important debate, and I hope that you'll find it both stimulating and challenging this evening. Now the question put to us tonight, why I am or am not a Christian has a distinctly personal flavor to it. We're not here simply to debate is Christianity true or false, but to explain why I am or am not a Christian. So I want to honor that personal tone by sharing quite personally with you tonight why I am a Christian. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or even a church-going family. Nevertheless, I never doubted that God exists. I remember as a boy looking up at the stars and contemplating the unimaginable vastness of the universe and thinking it all had to come from somewhere. There must be a first cause or a creator of the universe. Little did I realize that my boyish intuitions were at that very moment being confirmed by advances in astronomy and astrophysics. I remember in grade school listening to our science teacher explain the two competing theories of the origin of the universe, the Big Bang Theory and the Steady State Theory. These were to me mysterious and awesome matters, and it seemed inconceivable to me that the Steady State Theory with its infinite beginningless past could be correct. I was pleased that our science teacher told us that in her opinion the evidence favored the Big Bang Theory. In fact, it was only a few years later in 1965 that the discovery of the cosmic background microwave radiation effectively put the steady-state theory to rest. That radiation background proved that the universe was once in a very hot and dense state, a dramatic verification of the Big Bang Theory. According to that theory, the universe has not always existed. Rather, the universe began to exist in a cataclysmic explosion about 15 billion years ago. Most laymen don't realize that according to the Big Bang Theory, not only were all matter and energy created in the Big Bang, but physical space and time themselves. This is of utmost importance, because it means, as the Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle points out, that the Big Bang Theory requires the creation of the universe from nothing. Now, obviously, many scientists were deeply disturbed with the idea that the universe came into being out of nothing. This seems self-evidently absurd. Moreover, it seems to point to the need for a transcendent creator of the universe, which is anathema to secular minds. So over the decades, one theory after another has been put forward to try to dislodge the Big Bang Theory and avoid the beginning of the universe. For example, the oscillating universe theory, vacuum fluctuation theories, quantum gravity theories, and so on. And one after another, these alternative theories have bit the dust. With each failure, the Big Bang Theory has been corroborated. According to Stephen Hawking in his most recent book, The Nature of Space and Time, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, this tends to be very awkward for the atheist, for as Anthony Kenney of Oxford University urges, a proponent of the Big Bang theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. Now from the very nature of the case as the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, and immaterial being of an imaginable power which created the universe. It must be timeless and therefore changeless because it created time, because it also created space. It must transcend space as well and therefore be immaterial, not physical. Moreover, I want to argue it must also be personal. For if the changeless impersonal uh, conditions for the existence of the universe existed eternally, then the cause could never exist without its effect. If the changeless impersonal conditions for an effect are timelessly present, then the effect must be timelessly present as well. To illustrate, uh, imagine that the temperature, or rather the cause of water's freezing, is the temperature being below zero degrees centigrade. If the temperature were below zero from eternity, then any water around would be frozen from eternity. It would be impossible for the water to just begin to freeze a finite time ago. The only way for the cause to be timeless and the effect to begin a finite time ago is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses to create an effect in time without any prior determining conditions. For example, a man sitting from eternity could will to stand up. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. And thus it seems to me that we have good reasons to believe what intuitively struck me as a boy, the universe is not eternal and uncaused, but was brought into being by a transcendent, personal creator." Now, although I believed in God, nevertheless, God was not a reality in my life. He was the creator of the universe, far removed and distant from my experience. As I moved into my teenage years, I began to ask the big questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And as I wrestled with these questions, I found myself sinking into ever deeper despair. In the face of my own eventual death and ultimately the inevitable extinction of mankind and the heat death of the universe, everything seemed so pointless. Human life, my life, became just a brief and transitory blip in the purposeless plunge of the universe toward extinction and oblivion. The poet Stephen Crane effectively captured these sentiments in the following verses. A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. It was only later in life that I learned that I was experiencing what existentialist philosophers call angst, a deep despair or hopelessness at the core of one's being in the face of the absurdity of life. The French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre analyzed the notion of my death and showed that in light of your impending death, no matter how distant, the life you have left is ultimately absurd. As Sartre puts it, several hours or several years make no difference once you have lost eternity. If there is no immortality, then life is without ultimate meaning, value, or purpose. It is without meaning because without immortality, it literally does not matter how you live. Everything will wind up the same. It is without value because right and wrong, even if they exist, which is doubtful on an atheistic view, don't matter because your destiny is ultimately unrelated to how you live. It is without purpose because the purposes we invent to fill our lives, say, becoming a doctor or an artist or a baseball player, are all ultimately futile and fleeting gestures against the inevitable fall of darkness. In my high school English class we read Shakespeare's Macbeth. The play's most memorable lines are perhaps those of Macbeth upon the death of his wife. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. In the search for answers, I began to attend a large church in our community but instead of answers, all I found was a social country club where the dues were a dollar a week in the offering plate. And the other high school students who pretended to be such good Christians on Sunday, well, I knew what kind of lives they were really living the rest of the week. I resented their hypocrisy and phoniness, and so I began to withdraw into myself. I thought, I don't need people. As Simon and Garfunkel said, I had my books and my poetry to protect me. I was on my way to becoming a very alienated young man. The anger and the hopelessness that I felt just ate away at me inside so that every day became a burden. Then one day when I was feeling particularly miserable, I walked into my high school German class and sat down behind a girl who's one of these types, you know, that is always so happy it just makes you sick. (laughs) And I tapped her on the shoulder and she turned around and I said, Sandy, what are you always so happy about for anyway? And she said, well, Bill, it's because I know Jesus Christ is my personal savior. And I said, well, I go to church. And she said, that's not enough, Bill. You've got to have him really living in your heart. Well, what would he want to do a thing like that for? She said, because he loves you, Bill. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Here I was so filled with anger and despair And she said, there was someone who really loved me. And who was it but the God of the universe? And that thought just staggered me to think that the God of the universe could love that worm named Bill Craig down there on that speck of dust called Planet Earth. And so I began the most intense period of soul searching of my entire life. I read the New Testament from cover to cover and as I did so I was captivated by the person Jesus of Nazareth. His words had the ring of truth about them and his life had an authenticity which was not characteristic of those who claimed to be his followers in the church I was attending. I found that I could not reject him. On the contrary, I was drawn to him. I learned that my problem was sin. I knew that although my life was externally upright, my heart was selfish and twisted within. I learned that as a result I was spiritually dead and alienated from God, and that's why he seemed so distant and unreal. But Jesus claimed to have come for people like me. He said, I have come to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. By his death on the cross he paid the penalty for sin that I deserved so that I might be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God, my Heavenly Father. But it wasn't enough for me just to believe these things. Something had to happen to me or in me. I had to be spiritually regenerated or reborn by receiving God's Spirit. God promised to bestow upon me not only forgiveness, but also eternal life with Him. There was nothing I could do to earn this. It was a gift of God's grace which I could only gratefully receive. The message of Christ thus spoke volumes to my existential predicament. Here was the fulfillment of human existence. Here was the knowledge of God and His unbounded love. Here was the promise of eternal life, which infused the life I was now living with eternal significance, meaning, and purpose. For the choices that I made now had eternal consequences. God had given me the awesome freedom to determine my own eternal destiny. Well, at the time, I had never heard of biblical criticism, and it never occurred to me to doubt the historical veracity of the Gospels. I just had a deep sense as I read the teachings of Jesus that what he said was true. Since then, I've attended seminary, where I studied Hebrew and Greek, and completed doctoral studies in theology specializing on the historicity of the resurrection narratives in the New Testament. I've been gratified to discover that the intuitive trust which I as a teenager placed in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and teaching was historically well-founded. It is nothing short of amazing to me that the historical facts which inductively imply the resurrection of Jesus are generally agreed upon today by New Testament scholars. These facts are as follows. Number one, on the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in the resurrection reports, by far most exegetes hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. According to the New Testament critic D. H. Van Dahlen, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Fact number two, on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. This is a fact which is almost universally acknowledged among New Testament scholars. Even the skeptical German New Testament critic, Gert Ludemann, admits it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Finally, fact number three the original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every reason not to. Think of the situation that the disciples faced following Jesus' death. First of all, their leader was dead, and Jews had no belief in a dying, much less a rising, Messiah. Moreover, Jesus' execution as a criminal showed him out to be a heretic a man literally under the curse of God. Finally, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead prior to the general resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples believed in and were willing to go to their deaths for the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar from Emory University says, some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. There is no plausible, naturalistic explanation of these three facts. And therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. Well, as I said, the message of Christ spoke to my existential need. So about six months after my classmate Sandy first shared the good news of Christ with me, I just came to the end of my rope and yielded my life to God. I cried out all of the bitterness and anger that was in me and I felt at the same time a tremendous infusion of joy like a balloon just being blown up and blown up until it was ready to burst. I rushed outside and I remember it was one of those warm Midwestern nights when you could see the Milky Way spread from horizon to horizon and I looked up at the stars and I thought, God! I've come to know God! And that moment changed my whole life. God became a living reality to me, a reality that I've walked with day by day, year by year, over the last 30 years. In the absence of overwhelming arguments for atheism, it seems to me that I'm perfectly rational to believe in God on the basis of his immediate presence in my life. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think that I thus have more warrant for believing that God has touched my life than I do for the premises of any argument against God. So in conclusion, if you were to ask me why I am a Christian, I would appeal not only to the evidence for a creator of the universe and for the resurrection of Jesus, but also to the undeniability of God's personal presence in my life, a reality which I believe you too can discover if you will seek him with an open mind and an open heart. In his opening speech, Dr. Parson offered two reasons why he's not a Christian. First, that Christianity is not good. Secondly, that Christianity is not true. Let's look first at that uh, contention that Christianity is not good. He gave several reasons why he thinks Christianity is not good. First, that in the Old Testament there are atrocities in which God destroys various people uh, and that this is, uh, shows that God is not good. I think I would simply respond to this by saying that God, as the author and giver of life, has the right to take human life as he wills and to give human life as he wills. I would not have the right, for example, to go over and murder Dr. Parsons as he sits at the table there, but I think that God has it perfectly within His rights to strike someone dead at any moment that he would choose. So uh, if God chooses to take human life, I simply don't see that that is not good. What about the horrors of Christian history? Well, I certainly do agree that Christians have done many bad things down through history, but on balance, the record of the Christian faith is remarkably good. Kenneth Scott Latterat, the great Yale church historian, has written, We have much to say about the effects of Christianity upon the collective life of mankind as a whole. Here has been the most potent force which mankind has known for the dispelling of illiteracy, the creation of schools, the emergence of new types of education, from Christianity have issued impulses for daring intellectual and geographic adventures. The universities were largely Christian creations. Music, architecture, painting, poetry, and philosophy have owed some of their greatest achievements to Christianity. Democracy, as it was known in the 19th and 20th centuries, was in large part the outgrowth of Christian teaching. The abolition of slavery was due chiefly to Christianity. So, too, were the measures taken to protect the Indians against the exploitation of the whites. The most helpful movements for the regulation of war, for the mitigation of the sufferings entailed by war, and for the eventual abolition of war, owed their inception to the Christian faith. The nursing profession of the 19th century had the same origin, and the extension of Western methods of surgery and medicine to much of the non-accidental world was chiefly through the Christian missionary enterprise. The elevation of the status of women owed an incalculable debt to Christianity. No other single force has been so widely potent for the relief of suffering brought on by famine and for the creation of hospitals and orphanages. So that, yes, there have been atrocities perpetrated in the name of Christ, but on balance, Christianity has been the most potent force for good in the history of mankind. Secondly, I would simply say that when Christians have failed to live up to Jesus' example, that that isn't an indictment of Jesus. Jesus wouldn't have been a guard at Auschwitz. Jesus wouldn't have been a persecutor of people who disagreed with him. He taught to turn the other cheek, and it's Jesus that I'm defending tonight, not the record of the Christian church which so often fails him. Now, Dr. Parsons then raised a third point that hell is an awful doctrine. Well, what I would simply say here is that hell is the result of persons who freely separate themselves from God. It is not a result of God's will or desire. The Bible clearly says God's desire is that every person should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and that's why He gave His Son, so that everyone would come to know Him. The only reason that everybody doesn't go to heaven is because some people freely separate themselves from God forever. So yes, this is terrible but it's simply testimony to the depravity of man, that it would spit in the face of God and the the gift of His grace and forgiveness. So on the contrary, I would say Christianity is good. It is good news. It is the most wonderful news that has ever been announced. But is it true? Well, here we come to the central miracle of the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus. And Dr. Parson says, First, you've got to bear a very heavy burden of proof, uh, Mr. or Dr. Craig, because extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. This is a watchword of the free thought movement today that I always hear repeated. But when I think about it, I can think of almost no justification for that principle. I do not think it is true that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. As Thomas Sherlock pointed out in his book on the resurrection of Jesus, it doesn't take extraordinary evidence to establish that someone is alive. That's easy to do. Nor does it take extraordinary evidence to establish that someone is dead. That's accepted in any court of law. But to prove the resurrection of Jesus, all you need is good testimony that somebody was alive and then he was dead and then he was alive again. So I don't see that extraordinary events do require extraordinary evidence. The germ of truth in this statement, however, I think, is that certain explanations are not the best explanation because they're ad hoc, they're contrived. That's the problem with saying, oh, I saw someone flapping his arms and flying about the room. It's that that is an ad hoc explanation, it's contrived, there are better explanations than that. So the question is, when you come to the resurrection of Jesus, Is the best explanation a supernatural explanation or a naturalistic one? And I contend it is not ad hoc to appeal to a supernatural explanation in this case because of the religio-historical context in which that event occurred. The resurrection of Jesus is not just the resurrection of someone or anybody, it's the resurrection of Jesus who claimed to be the absolute revelation of God, who made these remarkable claims that Dr. Parson referred to. It comes as a climax of his own unparalleled life and teachings and is, as it were, a divine vindication of those radical claims to be the Son of God and the revelation of God to mankind. And therefore, this uh, explanation, I think, is not ad hoc or contrived. On the contrary, it fits like a hand in a glove into the life and teachings of Jesus. Well, what about the specific evidence? Dr. Parsons invades against the Gospels on several grounds uh, about how they're based on oral tradition and uh, so forth. But at the end of the day, the fact is that compared to other sources of ancient history, the Gospels compare very well. R.T. France, who is a New Testament scholar, writes, at the level of their literary and historical character, we have good reason to trust the Gospels seriously as a source of information on the life and teaching of Jesus. Ancient historians have sometimes commented that the degree of skepticism with which New Testament scholars approached their sources is far greater than would be thought justified in any other branch of ancient history. Indeed, many ancient historians would count themselves fortunate to have four such responsible accounts written within a generation or two of the events and preserved in such a wealth of early manuscript evidence. And then listen to what he concludes. The decision as to how far a scholar is willing to accept the record they offer is likely to be influenced more by his openness to a supernaturalistic worldview than by strictly historical considerations. In other words, skepticism about the Gospels, let's face it, is not rooted in their historical and literary quality, which is very good. It's rooted in an anti-supernatural bias, and I think that that's been evident in Dr. Parsons' own remarks tonight. Now, what specifically can we say about the appearances the empty tomb and the origin of the Christian faith? First with respect to the appearances, I pointed out that it is uh, universally agreed upon by New Testament scholars today that the earliest disciples did experience appearances of Jesus. Dr. Parsons simply flies in the face of New Testament scholarship. Why? Well, he says because legends can arise rapidly, and he gives the example of UFO reports, Elvis sightings, and so forth. This is just based on a misunderstanding. UFO sightings, Elvis reports, Bermuda Triangle are not of the genre of legend. Legend concerns how oral tradition being passed from one generation to another eventually gets transformed like in the child's game of telephone into a completely different story. And the classical Greco-Roman historian A.N. Sherwin White has said that even two generations is too short a time span for oral, uh, or rather, for legendary tendencies to wipe out the hard core of oral tradition. So we're not talking here about lies, fabrications, hoaxes, and so forth. We're talking about how long it takes for oral tradition to be completely reformed so that the memory of the original events is forgotten and be replaced by something else. This typically takes centuries, as in the uh, legends of King Arthur or the legends of Alexander the Great, which didn't arise until centuries after those people were dead and gone. By contrast, in the Gospels, these accounts are written within the first generation during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, so I don't think they're legendary. Moreover, I want to point out that they are multiply attested, not simply by Paul, but also by the Gospels, where you have independent multiple attestation of these events. And that's why most uh, New Testament scholars, unlike Dr. Parsons, believe these events really happen. Now, could they, however, have been hallucinations, as Dr. Parsons suggests? I think not. Number one, hallucinations cannot explain the physicality of the appearances. They were physical, as narrated in the Gospels. Two, the number and the various circumstances of the appearances preclude hallucinations. Jesus wasn't just seen one time, but many times, not just by one person, but many people, not on just one occasion, but under many occasions, not just by individuals, but by groups. The hallucination hypothesis just can't be stretched to accommodate that diversity. Thirdly, the disciples weren't psychologically disposed to hallucinate. They had no expectation of seeing Jesus alive again, and I'll say something more about that in a minute. Fourthly, hallucinations would never have led to belief in Jesus' resurrection. It would at most have led them to believe that Jesus had been assumed into heaven, and that's where they saw him, in Abraham's bosom, not that he had been literally raised from the dead. And in any case, hallucinations, fifthly, cannot explain the empty tomb. Well now, what about the empty tomb? Here, Dr. Parsons says, it's not surprising the empty tomb would be discovered, uh, or, or the narrative would have women discovered the empty tomb. I simply disagree. The reason this is remarkable is because the testimony of women was t- thoroughly unreliable in that day. They didn't wash and dispose the body of Jesus. This was done by Joseph of Arimathea. So you have to account why would they have a narrative of unreliable testimony rather than male disciples testifying to this. If this were a late legendary account, you can be sure it would have been male disciples who were made to discover the empty tomb. And thus, Jacob Kramer, writing in 1993, says that most exegetes ascribe to the tomb narratives a historical core, however this is to be more precisely determined. Raymond Schwager in 1993 says, in contrast to the legend hypothesis, it has recently become usual to assess positively the behavior of the women uh, with respect to Jesus' death and on Easter morning. So I think this is a good reason to accept the empty tomb as most New Testament scholars do. Finally, the origin of the Christian faith, he says, maybe they came up with this idea because Jesus predicted his resurrection. But you see, the skeptic can't argue that way because the skeptical scholar doesn't think Jesus predicted his resurrection. They think those predictions were written back in after the fact. If you accept that Jesus did predict his resurrection, then you've got to also accept the historicity of the empty tomb narratives, the appearances and so forth, because those narratives are better attested historically than the fact that Jesus predicted his resurrection. Do you see the point? If you accept the predictions, then a fortiori, you've got to accept the empty tomb and the appearances. And thus, I think we have good reason for believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. Let me begin by reviewing those reasons that I offered in my first speech for why I am a Christian and see how Dr. Parsons responded. First, I offered the evidence for a creator of the universe, and it's remarkable that nothing has been said about this in tonight's debate. It seems to me that we have every reason tonight to believe that there is a personal creator of the universe who brought the universe into being. And that's especially relevant then when we come to assess Jesus' claims to be the personal revelation of this God. Uh, I think it makes those claims even more credible. Uh, Then I offered the evidence for the resurrection, and we'll say something about that in a moment. My third point was the personal experience of God, and here Dr. Parsons responded that he has searched for God and not found God. Well, let me respond in two ways to that. First of all, that doesn't do anything to invalidate my personal experience of God. That doesn't do anything to show that God hasn't touched my life and that therefore I'm not justified in believing that God exists on the basis of that experience. But secondly, Jesus of Nazareth said that anyone who is seeking and searching for God will ultimately in the end find God, if they seek for him with an open heart and an open mind. He said, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened, ask and it will be given to you. For everyone who seeks finds, to him who knocks, the door shall be opened, and to him who asks it shall be given. So I would just encourage Dr. Parsons to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking, to keep on asking, and I believe that God will answer that. You know, if I just may say again, God loves each one of us. He wants us to come to know him. And if we will simply open our hearts to his grace and his love, I believe that we can find him as a reality. He's not hiding. Uh, He wants us to come to know him. Now, finally, what about the point that if God does not exist, then there is no meaning in life? Dr. Parsons says, what about Bertrand Russell? You mean to say Russell's life was meaningless? Russell himself said this. It's the atheists themselves who say that without God, life is absurd without meaning or value. Listen to Russell's own words. This is what he said. Man, listen to Russell's words, Man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. All the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. The whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the ruins of, a, uh, of, of beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. No philosophy which rejects these truths can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only upon the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. It is the atheists themselves who have recognized the absurdity of life if there isn't a God. And the good news, I think, of the gospel and of the evidence is that there is a personal creator of the universe that we can come to know. Now, what about that area of, uh, or the, the reasons for not believing in Christianity? Here, Dr. Parsons responded to my statement uh, about Christianity being good that. He thinks God doesn't have the right to take life. Well, I guess I simply disagree. God is the creator, the author, the sustainer of life, has the right to give it and take it as he sees fit. I think we simply have a difference of opinion on this. Secondly, what about Christianity being good down through history? I said Christianity has a good track record. He says, well, why say Christianity is the greatest influence for good? Now, wait a minute. He's the one who has to bear the burden of proof here. He's the one who said Christianity was bad. So he's got to show why the Christian influence has not been good. Uh, all I have to do is show that it has, and it certainly has been. Moreover, I said Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus uh, is the person to whom we must look for our example, and he didn't deny the point. Finally, with respect to the doctrine of hell, he said anyone who would reject God is a lunatic, and lunatics deserve uh, mercy. What I would say here is that God's, the demands of God's justice must be met. God as a holy God cannot simply blink at sin. Otherwise, we don't live in a moral universe, and therefore sin must be punished. Thus, we are morally obligated to believe in God. We are morally obligated to worship Him and to love Him as the supreme source of goodness and truth. But we have the freedom to disobey, in which we have to bear the consequences. Just as when one of my children has a moral obligation to do what I say, but they have the freedom to disobey, in which case they're disciplined. Now, what about the resurrection of Jesus? We really disagree on this idea that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And look what he said in his last speech, it's just common sense. Boy, your antenna should go up immediately when somebody makes that kind of appeal because that means there's a want of an argument here. There's no argument as to why that's true. On the contrary, what I said, the reason these strange claims are not accepted is not because of the lack of extraordinary evidence, it's because they're ad hoc. But in the case of Jesus, such explanations are not ad hoc. He says Bayes' theorem shows these to be improbable. Not at all. There is no improbability in the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead. What is improbable is the hypothesis Jesus rose naturally from the dead. I agree that that is highly improbable, but it is not improbable that God raised Jesus from the dead. And we've already seen that there's good evidence to believe that God exists. Now what about the Gospels specifically? I argued that the Gospels are generally historically reliable and he responded, but much more hangs upon the Gospels than it does on Tacitus and Pliny and other ancient historians. Sure, of course I admit that, but the amount that hangs on the truth of a narrative has absolutely nothing to do with the truth or falsity of the narrative, whether it's credible or incredible or not. So that's simply irrelevant to say much hangs on this. Of course much does, but that doesn't affect that the narrative is basically credible and I argued that the majority of New Testament critics today who are experts in this field accept the appearances, the empty tomb, and the origin of the Christian faith. Now Dr. Parsons in the last speech says, I do agree that the disciples experienced appearances of Jesus, but I would say that these were just hallucinations. But again I want to recur to the fact hallucinations can't explain the physicality of these appearances as they occurred The number and the variety, it's not just one UFO abductee, it's groups of people, numbers of people, unbelievers, skeptics, believers, who saw Jesus. Hallucinations can't accommodate that diversity. I also argued that it wouldn't have led to belief in Jesus' resurrection because the Jewish beliefs about the afterlife said that the resurrection only occurred after the end of the world, not within history. So they wouldn't have come to believe that. Rather, given their Jewish frame of thinking, what they would have believed had they hallucinated is God has translated Jesus into heaven, into paradise, and there he's appearing to us. If they had a hallucination, that's what a Jew would believe, not the contrary to Jewish thinking belief, that he had been raised from the dead. Um, And again, of course, hallucinations cannot explain the empty tomb. You have to cook up some independent hypothesis to explain the empty tomb after you've tried to use hallucinations. What about the empty tomb? I, I don't see that he responded to my points about how it's surprising that women would have discovered the tomb. Let me just mention a couple of other points in favor of the empty tomb story. Number one, it is found in a very old source, which is used by Mark, our earliest Gospels, and that mitigates the possibility of legendary development. Secondly, it lacks any signs of legendary development compared to, say, the apocryphal accounts. Is that a zero? Oh, so I'm out of time. Okay. Uh, And finally, the Jewish polemic, uh, earliest propaganda presupposes the empty tomb. They said the disciples stole the body, which presupposes the body was gone. So I think we have good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and and, uh, that he was who he claimed to be. We're now going to move to our closing comments, and I apologize for those of you that wanted to ask questions. Perhaps the uh, participants will be here afterwards to answer your question. Five-minute closing speech, and we'll begin with Dr. William Lang. Okay, and I'm supposed to deliver this, what, sitting here? You can stand over there if you'd like. Stand up, pick your notes, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, Okay. Well, uh, let me just try to summarize the threads of the debate then, I guess, as I see them. I presented three reasons tonight why I am a Christian. First of all was evidence for a personal creator of the universe, and uh, that has not been disputed tonight. Dr. Parsons says he thought it was irrelevant to the debate, but I think it's highly relevant, particularly when it comes to assessing the evidence for the resurrection, because if you already know that there is a supernatural being, a creator who exists, who's capable of doing something like a miracle, then that makes it all the more plausible to believe in miracle claims like the resurrection. So it is highly relevant. That's what it has to do with Christianity. Uh, With respect then to my second argument, the evidence for the resurrection, I think I've explained why I think that extraordinary claims don't require extraordinary evidence. What is true about that is that a a miracle claim is not the best explanation when it's ad hoc, when it's contrived. But when there is a significant religio-historical context in which that miracle claim occurs, then I think it is plausible to avert to the miraculous explanation if it's better than any naturalistic explanation. And when I look at the naturalistic explanations like conspiracy theory, swoon theory, hallucination theory, it seems to me that the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead surpasses these theories in terms of its its explanatory scope, its explanatory power, its plausibility. It's not ad hoc, and therefore, this is the best explanation that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, with respect to to the uh, appearances we agree that they occurred, the only question is whether or not these were hallucinations. And I I think that uh, given the diversity and the range of these experiences, it's unlikely they could be hallucinations. Also, it would be very un-Jewish, even if these hallucinations occurred, to interpret them as resurrection from the dead rather than assumption into heaven. And finally, uh, I pointed out that the hallucination hypothesis doesn't explain the empty tomb. You still need another hypothesis to explain that. The resurrection hypothesis explains both the empty tomb and the appearances as well as the origin of the Christian faith and thus has greater explanatory scope and so is a better explanation. With respect to the empty tomb, Dr. Parsons says, well, why trust Mary Magdalene? Well, very simply this, others could check out what she said. It wasn't just Mary who, who found the tomb empty, but others could see. In fact, it's remarkable that early Christianity originated in the very city where Jesus was crucified and buried. As Wolfhard Pannenberg, my doctoral mentor, stated, even if the empty tomb narratives were totally legendary, the tomb must have been empty when the disciples began to preach the resurrection of Jesus because you couldn't have a movement founded on the resurrection of a dead man flourishing in Jerusalem if everybody knew that the body lay interred in the hillside. So that's why most uh, historical scholars today the broad spectrum of New Testament scholars think that the tomb was, in fact, found empty. Finally, the origin of the Christian faith, we saw this couldn't be explained on the basis of Jesus' predictions of his resurrection because the evidence for the empty tomb is greater than the evidence for the predictions. So if you agree that the predictions were historical, then you have to also agree that the appearances in the empty tomb were historical, uh, and we saw how it contradicted Jewish modes of thinking. Finally, the personal experience of God. Uh, again, I guess I would just say this, if you have not found God in a personal, as a personal reality in your life, do what I did. Pick up the New Testament and begin to read the Gospels and ask yourself, could this really be true? Could there really be a God who loves me? Could Jesus of Nazareth really be the revelation of God to mankind? And begin to explore his claims for yourself I I believe that this could change your life in the same way that it changed mine.